0: Wow, good, good good, good evening. Oh, we've got photo showing time back here. Wow. We're ready to start. We'll do photo time later. Thank you for coming out tonight. And if you come, you'll get to see Jeff's photos. So yeah. <laughs> Next week, if you come out, Jeff will show you all of his photos. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming out tonight. Can you open your Bible, please, to... Jeremiah chapter 16, Uh, Jeremiah chapter 16. Now in in this chapter, we're faced with a very familiar message, uh, one that we've seen many times in the book of Jeremiah, and that is judgment. Uh, That's the main color woven in the tapestry of this book. It's all very dark gray so far, very doom and gloom, Uh, but this chapter contains a slightly different slant. And you'll be pleased to know that it actually contains a glimmer of hope. Um, But before we get to the hope, there is some more doom and gloom. So this uh, this chapter breaks up into uh, two main portions. The first section being verses 1 to 13, and the second being verse 14 to 21. There are three object lessons within the, the first section, along with an explanation. And the second section contains a message of hope. It's verses 14 and 15, then a message of doom, verses 16 to 18, and then it finishes with a message of hope. There's actually two lots of hope in this chapter. It's like, wow, it's very different to what we've seen so far. So there's the structure of this chapter. Uh, the chapter's all about illustrating the complete ruin of judgment, and yet grace offers a glimmer of hope. So with all of that said, let's read uh, this chapter, and then we'll pray. And then we'll commence our study. So Jeremiah chapter 16, reading from verse 1. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning their fathers that beget them in this land. They shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth for thus saith the lord enter not into the house of mourning neither go to lament or bemoan them for i have taken away my peace from this people saith the lord even loving kindness and mercies both the great and the small shall die in this land they shall not be buried Neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning, to comfort them for the dead. Neither shall men give them the cup of consolation, to drink for their father or for their mother. Thou shalt not also go into the house of feasting, to sit with them, to eat and to drink. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes, and in your days, the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt show this people all these words. And they shall say unto thee, Wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord. And have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land, into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall ye serve other gods day and night, whither I will not show you favour. Therefore behold, the days come, saith the Lord that it shall be no more said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill. And out of the holes of the rocks, for mine eyes are upon all their ways, they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first, I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land, they have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of the detestable and abominable things. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee. From the ends of the earth and shall say surely our fathers have inherited lies vanity and things wherein there is no prophet shall a man make gods unto himself and they are no gods therefore behold i will this once cause them to know i will cause them to know mine hand and mine might, and they shall know that my name is the lord and this is the word of the lord and uh, let's pray and uh, then we'll work our way through this portion of scripture Father, thank you uh, for this night you've given to us. Thank you that we can take out, um, you know, some some time in our week uh, to consider uh, your words. Please help us tonight as we work our way through uh, Jeremiah 16. Help us to understand uh, what's written. And uh, please, you know, grant to us uh, the grace to apply the message you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, have you ever received an eviction notice? You have been given a period of time to vacate your home because the owner has new plans. That's not very nice to receive. It means you have to find another house and go through the dreaded moving process. But an eviction notice isn't completely unexpected when you're renting. Imagine, however, you own your own home and you receive a letter from the government evicting you from your house, the one you paid for, that would be pretty hard to take, wouldn't it? Okay, that would be like swallowing gravel. You'd be pretty upset. But then imagine if you received a letter evicting you from the country. Okay, the Australian government is extraditing you. Ben's nearly experienced that. But for us Australian citizens, imagine if that happened to us. That, that would be terrible. That's you know very serious. And I'm sure you would be pursuing all of our legal paths to get it overturned. But imagine receiving an eviction notice from God. That's what Judah receives in the text. You know, imagine that coming in the mail. Okay, they, they were living in a land that God had given them. Okay, Joshua 24 verse 13 says, And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them, or of the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Okay, so the Lord had blessed them abundantly. The Lord had given them this land, but the Lord's who gives can also take away. And Judah had broken the rental agreement, if you like. Okay, they hadn't honored the conditions of the covenant. And hence the Lord issues the eviction notice. Okay, we see this in verse 13. It says, therefore, will I cast you out of this land into a land that ye know not. And I'd like to consider both the evicting from the land and then the promised restoration to the land and draw out some relevant points for our lives. Okay, so firstly, the eviction notice issued. in this first section that concludes with the issuing of the eviction notice, it contains three object lessons. And they were lived out by Jeremiah in his day-to-day life. And they were purposefully designed to make a spiritual point. Now, it's important to notice in verse one that these object lessons were from the Lord. Thus said the word of the Lord came unto me. That's Jeremiah. So these object lessons were the Lord's idea. This was not Jeremiah's invention. It's not that the prophet is losing the plot. It's not that he's a bit crazy or eccentric, but rather this comes from the Lord directly. And there were three things that Jeremiah was to abstain from in his life. And all three come at a great personal cost. So object lesson one, he wasn't to get married and he wasn't to have children. Verse two, thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. Okay, thou shalt which commences verse two, it's the same Hebrew word structure that's found in the Ten Commandments. So this is a divine commandment just for Jeremiah. And I'm sure it mustn't have been easy for him to receive. Because how would you feel if the Lord said to you at a young age, my will for your life is that you never get married and you never have children. Okay, most young people want to know God's will. You'd probably regret asking that question if that's what you got told. Okay, that would be hard to take, okay, particularly when we're young. Most of us see ourselves as married and with kids, and that was no different in Jeremiah's day. In fact, it was actually intensified because in Jewish culture, it was a shame and dishonor to be single and childless. Okay, bachelorhood was very unusual. In fact, biblical Hebrew doesn't even have a word for bachelor. And in the Talmud, which is the rabbinic tradition, it actually pronounces a curse upon a man if you're not married by 20. So I was like, man, I was 25, so I would have been, I would have been cursed. But yeah, if you weren't married before 20, there was a curse pronounced upon you. So this divine instruction was obviously issued to Jeremiah early in his life. Otherwise, he would have already been married. And understand that the Hebrew structure stresses the permanence of this command. So it's not a command, okay, you can't be married between 18 and 30, but then you can get married. But but rather, this is permanent celibacy. You will never be married and you'll never have kids. And no doubt, this would have been challenging for Jeremiah, a painful burden to miss out of the joys and blessings of family life. And he would have experienced a barrage of scorn and ridicule. His family and friends, no doubt, tried to convince him to get married. I can imagine his father, so, you know, son, Jerry. I found a girl down the end of the street. Okay, she's beautiful. She's intelligent. She's in a good family. I even paid the dowry. Cost me a fortune. And he goes, sorry, sorry, I just, I can't do it. You know, I'm sure many people would have asked him the question, Jeremiah, why, why aren't you married? Okay, too many people ask singles that question today. Why aren't you married yet? And it's like, you've got something wrong with you. That's why you're not married. I know I, I felt that. So some advice, don't ask people that question. And no doubt, Jeremiah got it repeatedly. The question is, why did the Lord insist on this object lesson? Okay, what, Why this? Well, it's important to understand that it's not because there's a problem with marriage. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It's to be embraced. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be celebrated. So this is in no way degenerating the covenant of marriage. In fact, this is a unique call to celibacy in the Old Testament. But at this unique time, the Lord demanded that Jeremiah cannot be married for at least two reasons. The first is this. It illustrates the judgment to come. Jeremiah not having a wife or kids symbolically pictures what's about to happen to the entire nation when judgment is unleashed. Most people won't have a spouse or children because they're going to be killed. And this is outlined in verses 3 and 4. It's very gruesome. And hence, it also served as a vivid reminder that the family life of the nations, something that they treasured that was so important to them, it was about to be disrupted in a very big way. And no doubt many people asked Jeremiah, well, why aren't you married? And this gave him an opportunity to explain. But the second reason is that this was also a gracious demand from the Lord. Okay, we need a category in our lives for what we could call the grace of prevention. Okay, so God prevents some things because he's gracious. And that's the case with Jeremiah. Now it may not seem like that initially, like, well, how how's it gracious that he can never get married? Okay, never have children, but but think it through. Jeremiah knew that judgment was coming. Okay, the Lord knew that judgment was coming. Imagine what it would have been like for Jeremiah to have a wife and kids. Okay, he, he was aware that you know the place was going to be ransacked. There wouldn't be anything more crushing for a man than to watch his wife and his children suffer and be slaughtered. That's a sword thrust through the heart repeatedly. And here the Lord protects Jeremiah from this devastation by preventing him from being married. Hence, this is the grace of prevention. And we need this category in our lives. God sometimes allows things... Even things that we regard as not good because it's going to prevent something far worse. And sometimes he prevents things from happening that we think are good because it prevents us from doing something that will not be good. It protects us from some bad path or it directs us to a better path. God often prevents things from happening for our good. This is another aspect of his grace. So not being married, that's the first object lesson. The second object lesson is a prohibition to mourn. We read in verse 5 that Jeremiah was not to enter the house of the mourning, nor lament or bemoan them. So in other words, he wasn't allowed to go to a funeral. Now when someone would die in a small village like Jeremiah's, Anathoth was a small town... It was custom that the whole village would be involved in the burial and the mourning. And you would have a ministry to the family who was grieving. Everyone would get involved. It was a real community affair. Everybody would gather at the home of the mourning family. And people would bring food and they'd bring drink to share. Because it was an unclean thing to prepare food in the house of where someone had died. And if someone wasn't involved in this, that they would end up becoming detached from their community. They would be branded unkind, uncaring, that they would be ostracized. So again, this was highly unusual and would lead to many questions. But what did this signify? What's the point of this object lesson? Well, it showed that God was going to withdraw his comfort and peace. We see this in verse five. It says, "For I have taken away my peace from this people," saith the Lord, "even loving kindness and mercies." Now, all three of these terms—peace, loving kindness, and mercies—they're okay, all used in covenantal contexts throughout the Old Testament. And I want you to notice in this phrase, the Lord refers to them as this people, okay, not my. People, which is typical covenantal language. So the Lord has withdrawn, okay, he's withdrawn himself due to their covenantal unfaithfulness. Okay? And this is disastrous. And this was illustrated by Jeremiah, okay, withdrawing from the morning, withdrawing from the community life in general. But primarily Jeremiah not being involved in the morning illustrates what it's going to be like when the judgment is unleashed. Thousands are going to be killed, but nobody will mourn. Okay, verses six and seven are paints a, a very sad picture. Okay, there's an unspeakable death toll, and yet they're not being buried, okay, which is a real disgrace for a Jew, okay, but rather the animals are coming in and devouring the bodies. There was nobody to comfort others, nobody mourned. We're also told nobody was cutting themselves. That's a pagan mourning practice. It's prohibited in Deuteronomy 14.1, yet it's still evidently practiced. And there was no one to bring a cup of consolation, which was a Jewish mourning practice. So this is such a horrible scene. Death, 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 and yet there's nobody to mourn. And this is what Jeremiah is illustrating in this object lesson. But it wasn't only the sad occasions that Jeremiah had to withdraw from, it was also the joyous occasions. So the third object lesson is a prohibition to celebrate, and this is in verses 8 and 9. You know, like the funerals in these small villages, events like weddings were communal celebrations. Everyone would be involved and it would be a joyous occasion. It would often go on for days. But the prophet was required to decline such invitations and not be involved in the celebrations. And the point behind this object lesson was that there's going to be nothing to celebrate when judgment fell. There would be no gladness. There would be no festivities. There would be no weddings. And the coming judgment also made celebration in the present seem quite absurd. Why are you celebrating in light of what's coming? And this is why the Lord required Jeremiah to abstain from all celebrations. And again, this would have resulted in him becoming increasingly ostracized and ridiculed in the community at large, but even in his own family. Now imagine breaking it to his parents that he can't attend his brothers or his sisters or his cousin's wedding because of this divine prohibition. That would not be good for family relations. Then imagine Jeremiah having to tell his parents, I I can't go to grandma's funeral because of the divine restrictions. He would not have been popular. But these three divinely commanded deprivations made his life a picture of the terrible fate that awaited the nation. His life was illustrating the message that he was preaching. And these illustrations, these object lessons, all pointed to God's eviction notice to the people. They were going to be cast out of the land. And yet, what is astonishing is that the people didn't expect this. That they couldn't understand it. We see this in verse 10. Why is God dealing with us like this? It would be like living in someone's house, never paying the rent, trashing the house. And then you, oh, I can't understand why they evicted me. Okay, that's that's Judah. And the Lord anticipates this question in verse 10. And he tells Jeremiah, when they plead their ignorance and their innocence, you know, Jeremiah, what have we done? Why is the Lord doing this? Jeremiah was to remind them of their generational unfaithfulness. Okay, this has been going on for generations. This is long-term covenant unfaithfulness and the current generation is the worst of them all okay that's verse 12 and that's saying something and here that the lord is very clear to make the point that what's going to happen okay, it's not merely bad luck it's not just a stronger empire babylon taking a weaker empire judah you know that's a common occurrence okay the lord didn't want him to think like that he wanted to make it clear this is divine judgment this is consequences for their sin and they will be removed from the land they had violated they had defiled god's land abused it polluted it and so the lord was going to send them away and notice the irony in verse 13 in babylon you shall serve other gods Day and night. So we could say that God gave them what they wanted. Okay, They wanted all of these idols. They wanted idolatry. God gave it to them. And often, this is the worst punishment. God giving you over to your desires. They wanted idols. Well, here you can have idols. And it's very interesting that this punishment actually cured them of their idolatry. Because as you read into the New Testament, it's no longer an issue that the Jewish people had. Okay, throughout the Old Testament, huge problem. New Testament, not so much. Okay, God's discipline worked. This was a very hard lesson. Okay, the eviction, notice, resulted in brutal judgment. It was total judgment. If you look at verse 16, two two images are used, that of a fisherman and a hunter. Okay, Judah was the fish. The fishermen were chasing after them. Then they were the prey. Okay, and the hunter's were after them and and the term hunts I believe this is a Persian military practice okay they would all line up in a line and they would slowly move through whether it's forest or mountains trying to find absolutely everybody ensuring no one was spared okay and this punishment this this was just this was fair this was righteous okay this idea is expressed in verse 18 Okay, we read there, it says, recompense their iniquity and sin double. Now, the sense here is not so much double punishment, like it's over the top, but rather this was just and fair. This was appropriate. This was right because they defiled the land. So since they defiled the land, they would be evicted. And this eviction was going to be brutally devastating. Okay, now, what, what can we learn from this eviction notice? Okay, well, number one, God is serious about dealing with sin. Okay, it's very clear that this judgment was orchestrated by the Lord, and it was because these people were unfaithful. Okay, they were evicted because of their sin, And this teaches us that God hates sin. Our God is so holy, he despises sin, and he will deal with it. For the unsaved, their sin will be dealt with in hell for all eternity. And the only way to avoid that is is by coming to Jesus Christ and trusting in him as your Lord and Savior. But even for the Christian, God hates sin in our lives. We shouldn't be content with sin in our lives. And when we are, he will deal with it. The Lord will chasten us. He will will discipline us. He will remove his blessings from our life. He will unleash varying forms of chastening in order to drive sin from our lives. Our God is not content for us to live in sin and neither should we as his people. And if we choose to ignore this, God will deal with us. Number two, this judgment is but a small taste of hell. Whenever whenever we read of judgments in the Bible, our focus should shift to hell. And as horrendous as this judgment is that's described in our text, death, death, and more death, that is nothing compared to what awaits the unsaved in hell, that their destiny is far worse, and, and it's eternal. And hence, such passages of Scripture should cause you and I to thank the Lord that we have been spared from such judgment. Okay, that, That's what we deserve, but it should also heighten our evangelistic zeal, knowing this is what awaits those who are outside of Christ. And number three, that the consequences of sin are often tailor-made and ironic. You know, we know that idolatry was Judah's kryptonite or Achilles' heel. And in verse 13, we see that the Lord judges them in Babylon. And what does he do? He bombards them with idols. It was like God gave them what they wanted. And often, that's one of the worst punishments. So don't be surprised if you continue in a particular sin in a certain area of your life, that the consequences affect or impact that same area, so that the thing that you end up placing before God ends up becoming the greatest heartbreak in your life. Okay, that's often how God works, you know. And one of the worst consequences is when God permits us to have what we want. Okay, but He does these things for our good, for He's seeking to purge and purify His people. So that is the eviction notice issued. Okay, so more warnings of judgment, but now comes the glimmer of hope. This is our second point entitled the gracious promise of restoration. Okay, verses 14 and 15 that they're actually astonishing. Okay, they contain a promise of a homecoming. So that the pending exile in Babylon it would only last for a set time. Okay, so finally, there's some positive news that there's this glimmer of hope amidst all the doom and gloom of judgments. Okay, and this promise of restoration, okay, this, is, this is monumental. And the enormity of this event is seen in verses 14 and 15 because it will become the more commonly used illustration for redemption or salvation. The people will remember this more fondly then Egypt. Okay, notice verses 14 and 15. They say, therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, that's Babylon, and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. So, so significant is this moment that the people will hardly remember Egypt in comparison, and that's saying something because the release from Egypt that was the defining moment for this nation, and it was used right throughout the Old Testament to illustrate salvation. It was known as God's great saving act, but this restoration, the exiles returning to the land, this second. Exodus would usurp the first exodus in the minds of the people. And this is an astonishing promise. It's one that must have thrilled Jeremiah. This exile would only be for a period of time. And we learn elsewhere that this exile would be for 70 years. And understand 70, it's not a random number. It was because they had not allowed their land to rest. Okay, in God's law, they were told that the land is to rest every seven years. For 490 years, they hadn't allowed the land to rest. 490 divided by seven is 70. Okay, so the Lord took them out of the land. You're not going to let it rest? I'll take you away from it and the land will get its rest. Okay, so this is part of what it means that they defiled the land. They hadn't allowed it to rest. Now, I want you to notice why the Lord was going to do this, why he was going to allow them to return. It wasn't because the people deserve it, but verse 15 says, I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers, meaning because of the covenant. God would keep his covenantal promises and hence Judah would return to the land. Okay, and in the meta-narrative of Scripture, now meta-narrative, that's referring to the one big story of the Bible, okay, this moment is very important because there needed to be a fully functioning Jerusalem, a fully functioning temple for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Okay, the nation couldn't be off in exile, and hence this promise has Christological implications attached to it as well. But it is interesting That the next verses, okay, we finally get some hope, but then we go back to the theme of judgment. Now, I've already mentioned, these verses in the first point, okay, but, but why? Why is judgment mentioned again? Well, perhaps it's arranged like this just to confirm that the promise of restoration in no way weakens or lessens the judgment. Okay, it's still going to happen, okay, that's probably the sense. But then the message of hope continues in the final few verses. It speaks of Gentiles being blessed. Verse 19 says, The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. Gentiles, pagans, would forsake their idolatry. The scales from their eyes would be removed and they would grasp the futility of idolatry and they would embrace the land. So this seems to be speaking partially to the fact that some Gentiles would return to the land in the time of restoration. So there would be what we call proselyte Jews. And if you remember, when Israel went out of Egypt, some Egyptians actually went with them. So too will some Babylonians embrace the Lord. That, That seems to be the idea in the immediate context. And it may well include Gentiles coming to Christ through the gospel. It may have that attached to it, a prophetic significance. But either way, this is a glorious message of hope. And it reveals the grace of God extending his kindness and favor toward the pagan nations. But before the hope that the judgment was coming, It's at its darkest just before dawn, and it's very dark in Judah at this point in time. But by God's grace, daybreak was coming. He doesn't leave them in the dark. But before that moment, they will endure great darkness and great doom, as illustrated by the object lessons in Jeremiah's life because of god's faithfulness to his covenant okay our god is a faithful god promise keeping god this darkness would only be for a time and he would graciously and gloriously restore them and the beauty is we know that promise was kept okay read ezra read nehemiah when we get to the new testament jerusalem's there there's a temple Okay, and all of this, it paved the way for the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple, the restoring of the people, which enabled the coming of Christ. So praise the Lord that he keeps his promises. So there's two things that I want to leave you with. Okay, the first one is this. Okay, what are you willing to give up for the Lord? Okay, Jeremiah here, he gave up marriage gave up children he gave up social acceptance he gave up many relationships all for the cause of god okay the question for you and the question for me is what are we willing to give up for jesus okay jesus gave up everything for us that's the gospel okay so that that's our belief that's the indicative he gave his life for us that's the reality so what's the appropriate response ought not we be willing to give up anything for Jesus. So would you be willing, like Jeremiah, to not get married for Jesus' sake? Would you be willing to not have children for the cause of Christ? They're, They're big sacrifices. Would you quit your job tomorrow to serve Jesus if you knew that's what he wanted? Will you give up your social acceptance, your social standing in order to take a stand for the Bible's morals. You won't be popular if you do it. Will you sacrifice other activities to prioritize church? Okay, I won't play sport on Sunday. I need to be in church. Okay, I won't stay up late Saturday night because I need to be in church. Will you give up your your dreams, your aspirations for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to give up riches for Jesus? Okay, understand. Discipleship is about denying self. Okay, that that's what Jesus told us okay following christ you take up your cross and follow him it comes at a cost you know are you willing to give things up for jesus or or are there things in your life that you're not willing to give up okay there's no way i'm going to give that up if that's the case okay it shows that there's things in your life that mean more than jesus making them idols okay jesus gave up everything for us we ought to be willing to give up Anything for him. And the second point is each step of redemption is more glorious than the step before. Okay, we learn in a text from the people that the second Exodus ends up usurping the first in their minds. To, to them, it seems to be even more glorious, even more miraculous. Okay, and this illustrates for us a biblical principle. Revelation in the Bible is revealed progressively, and it builds on top of what has gone before it. And we learn here that each step in the plan of redemption is more glorious than the step before. Okay, so salvation from Egypt, that was amazing. But salvation from Babylon was even greater. But what about the ultimate fulfillment? God has completely outdone himself because in Christ he has saved us from sin and death. He's provided us with eternal salvation. And if the people in the Old Testament, if they got excited about salvation from Egypt, if they got excited about salvation from Babylon, how much greater should we be moved because we are saved from sin? Okay, This is certainly far more glorious than salvation from Babylon or Egypt, and my friend, this is ours because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray, Lord. I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion uh, of Scripture. Uh, Lord, I know there has been, you know, a lot of judgment as we've made our way through this book, and yet that's Your Word for us. Um, you know, we, we need to, to hear it. It's profitable for us. Uh, so, Lord, please please help us to apply uh, Your Word. And, uh, and to grow, make progress uh, in our sanctification. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.